If you have your copy of the scriptures, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 verses 2 through 9 is what we will be reading that we'll be focusing specifically on verses 2 through 7. For such a short book, Philippians is filled with a number of well-known passages, verses that we frequently refer back to when we're looking at other texts of Scripture. For example, over in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul's reminder, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. A reminder that God is continually at work in the lives of his children and the work that he has started in them, his work that began at their conversion is not something that started at conversion and was done at conversion, but is a work that God continues on. This is an encouraging reminder and a hope that we return to regularly. But also, Paul's reminder, his example in 121, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. A reminder that our hope, whether we live or whether we die, our hope is in Christ. And to be with Him is the best that we could hope for. And so, as we live, we live to follow Christ, but we look forward to being with Him. But also, the example of Christ that Paul so beautifully illustrates in the early verses of chapter 2. Christ's picture of humility and obedience, but also the Father's glorious exaltation of Christ and the hope, the anticipation that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But then immediately thereafter, this reminder, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. An important reminder that in preaching and teaching, we often come back to, to remind us that yes, we are to strive after faithfulness. And as we do, we do so empowered by God because He is the one who is ongoingly at work in us. We have Paul's resume of unparalleled righteousness from a human standpoint in chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, and then continuing on, a resume that he sets aside and counts as nothing compared to knowing Christ. Perhaps most familiar of all, towards the end of the book, we haven't gotten here yet, Lord willing, we will do so in the near future. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, and trust me, we'll consider that verse in its context when we get to it. But also, 
a text in our passage that we come to today. Verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. An admonition that we often are reminded of, to not be anxious, but to go to the Lord in prayer, and a very precious promise regarding the peace of God that is the believers. But, this verse has the potential both to help, but also, if we are not careful, we can, with good intentions, Use especially verse 6 to hurt and to harm. If we simply take this passage to those who are struggling with worry and anxiety, and we simply say to them something to the effect, get over it. It's no big deal. See, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Just pray about it and you'll be okay. There's a sense in which that's true, but there's also a sense in which we need to understand more about what Paul is saying. And so to that end, as we come to this point in the book of Philippians, What we're going to do over the next couple of Sundays at least is going to feel more like a topical study than an exposition as we've worked our way through the book of Philippians. But in my view, it's necessary for me in my exposition, in our exposing what Paul is saying, here in verses 6 and 7, to hit the pause button and to consider this reality of anxiety, of worry, of fear, and how it is that we might pursue the peace of God in prayer in light of the reality of the worry and the anxieties that we all face from one point to another. So as we think about these verses, and as we think about how we would respond to them and how we would encourage others to respond to them, I want us to take the concept of of worry and consider it from a biblical perspective and not just take a quick glance at it, but turn it around like a diamond and see its facets. But also in seeing those facets, in seeing its details, its features, seeing what it is that God has to say to us and promises that He makes to us in light of the experience of anxiety, worry, and fear that come at us all. Now, before we do that, we're going to, I want to make a few 
high-level observations about verses 2 through 5, we'll make those, and then we'll begin considering verses 6 and 7. But let's read Philippians 4, 2 through 9 together. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to receive and to respond to what you have for us in your word this morning. Father, we pray that we would be shaped by it. We pray that we would be corrected by your word. Father, we pray that our confidence in Christ, that our joy in Him, that our hope in Him would be nourished as we are reminded of the promises that you have made to us in Him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as we consider how we might take to heart Paul's admonition not to be anxious... Again, I want to make a few observations about some of the things that Paul addresses in verses 2 through 5. So, as we come to verse 2, Paul gets very personal with this congregation. We've talked about in the past that there is some sort of disunity in the congregation, And Paul has been encouraging them to stand together, united in faith, in joy, in submission to Christ, and that it is only by standing firm together that they will withstand the opposition that is coming to them from without. But there is a threat to them. There is a threat of internal division that will distract them and distract them away from faithfulness. And it is here in verses 2 through 3 that we really get the window into the disunity that is challenging this congregation. But in reality, we don't know much about the disunity that they're facing. Only that it seems to center on two women in the congregation. The details remain hidden to us. 
it's likely that Euodia and Syntyche, given that Paul refers to them by name and alludes to their dispute or their division by name, it's likely that they were influential in this congregation. We don't know what roles they played. Again, the details remain hidden to us. But the congregation knew what was going on. And it's likely that there were those who were taking sides in this division. But notice that he also appeals not just to Syntyche and Euodia, but he also speaks of this true companion. Here is another detail that remains hidden to us. Who is this true companion? Is it a particular individual in this congregation whom the church knew by name? Or is he referring to all of the faithful in the congregation who he considers faithful in fellowship with him? Remember, he refers to the Philippians repeatedly as partners in the gospel. He talks about Clement, a common name in that day. We don't know who Clement was, but all of these are regarded as fellow workers. And in this way, notice that Paul values. Paul values these women and their partnership. It's unusual in his letters that he would call out someone by name like this. In fact, the only other reference that we can find to a call-out such as this is over in Colossians 4.17. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Here is a direct message that he is to fulfill what has been given to him in the Lord. And here in Philippians, he is calling these women to correction, to a form of agreement in the Lord. It shouldn't be minimized. As we think about Paul's respect implied for these women, sometimes we can refer to these ladies as troublemakers, or they can be thought of in a negative light. But it, it doesn't seem that Paul likely viewed them as such identifying them as faithful, as fellow workers. And it seems as though he likely understood that they were in such a spot in their walk with the Lord that they could take it, that they could receive this public admonition. As we think about the reality of fear that we're going to come to in just a few moments, it seems as Paul wrote this letter, he didn't fear how it was that they would respond. He had an estimation likely of their maturity that they would respond with the help of others. Again, I ask you also, true companion, help these women to restore faithfulness, to restore unity, and to walk together. But also notice, whatever their disagreement was, whatever their disagreement was, how, or better yet, where 
were they to agree. They were to agree in the Lord. That is, whatever their differences were, they were to follow the example of Christ that Paul had called this entire congregation to and not seek their own interests, to not look out for themselves, but to look out for one another, to serve one another, and to serve this congregation together. Indeed, as Paul wrote, he likely had Psalm 133.1 ringing in the back of his mind. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity or when sisters dwell in unity, when the people of God are united together despite whatever secondary differences they might have. Paul is appealing to these women and to this congregation to walk together, laying aside their disagreements, because as we have seen, it is only as they walk hand in hand together that they will be in a position not to fear the opposition that they are facing from outside. And they will be able to walk together in faithfulness as faithful witnesses to Christ. But also, as he calls this congregation to a renewed unity, setting aside this division, he also calls them to rejoice in the Lord always. Now here, at this point in the letter, we come to a point where Paul gives a number of quick hitters. These first few are actually things that we've already touched on as we've worked our way through the book of Philippians. And that's why we're going to be brief here. Rejoice in the Lord always. A few weeks ago, we looked back at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And if you'll recall, as we looked at that passage we see that Paul is reminding these believers not to rejoice in themselves, in their own abilities, in their own status, in others' perspective of them, but to rejoice only in the Lord, in who they are in Him, in what He has done for them. This is where their hope is to be found. And indeed... As we face trials, as we face anxieties, as we face worries in this life. Friends, we will only walk in those experiences in faithfulness as we strive to put our hope in the Lord, to rejoice supremely in the Lord and what He has done for us. But also, Paul tells them in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, here we come to a bit of an awkward point, frankly, because reasonableness is probably not the best way to translate this word. In fact, the ESV and its, its predecessor are really the only major English translations that 
translate this reasonableness. All the other translations use the word gentleness. And that seems to be more apt to what Paul is getting at. Because everywhere else that he uses this word, the sense is one of gentleness, of consideration. As he describes the requirements for elders, for overseers. He writes this in 1 Timothy 3, that they are not to be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Same word. He writes not just of the elders, but of all believers in Titus chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be Gentle. James 3.17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, followed by open to reason. 1 Peter 2, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And in every place that this word occurs, the sense is one of Gentleness, tenderness, consideration of others. And here it seems, again, Paul is hearkening back to that example of Jesus that he gave. And believers are to be marked, not just in their interaction with one another, but they are to be characterized in their interactions even with the world by a spirit of gentleness. Now, in that, certainly, there are occasions where we must stand firm and we do not waffle on the truth and we do not sacrifice the truth. But friends, we can stand firm in the truth and in the vast majority of ways, in the vast majority of times, do so in gentle and appropriate ways. Letting the truth be offensive, not our disposition or the way in which we speak to or defend the truth. We cannot, we cannot force anyone to view us in a certain light. But insofar as it depends upon us, as Paul says elsewhere, we should strive to see that the way that we interact with one another and the way that we interact with others is marked by a spirit of gentleness and consideration. And this isn't just in person. Paul had no idea what Twitter was. He didn't know about Facebook. What he says here applies there too. Because it's all too easy on a platform like that to get really nasty really quick. Friends, let it not be said of us. Let us stand faithfully and let us stand faithfully in an appropriate spirit. But also, not only should we rejoice in the Lord, not only strive for unity, not only be marked by gentleness, But as we've seen repeatedly throughout this letter, a reminder that the Lord is at hand. That is, 
for the believer, our disposition is always that the return of the king could come at any moment. There is no other work of God in redemptive history that must be completed for the Lord Jesus to return. Will we be faithful upon His return? Luke 18. Let us remember that the Lord is at hand. And in many respects, all of these things, the striving after unity, rejoicing in the Lord, being marked by gentleness, a remembrance that the Lord's coming could be at any time. All of these factor into how we respond to the experience of worry and anxiety in this life. And to that, I would like us to turn. Again, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Really, what I want us to do for the remainder of our time is to consider Paul's admonition. Do not be anxious about anything. And in particular, to get at what he is calling us to, we need to understand what anxiety is. We need to understand a bit more about our experience of worry and fear in this life. So first, I'd simply like to make some observations about worry, anxiety, and fear. And I'll be referring to some other scripture passages as well, but I want us to have a basic understanding of the Bible's perspective on these issues. First, worry, anxiety, and fear are interchangeable biblically. That is, in the original language, languages, the Bible uses the same, uses different words to refer to the same general experience. There's not one word that we could use to say, well, this is worry in contrast to anxiety that's a little bit different from fear. Instead, the Bible uses all kinds of vocabulary to refer to this same general experience. Now, in our English language, we might use those words with a little bit of nuance, but as we approach how the Bible addresses this common human experience, we need to understand that, that those nuances are not ones that it gives. Rather, it points us to a basic general response to this common experience in how it addresses our fear. This is what Dr. Robert Jones writes in his little booklet, Why Worry? While one might suggest nuance differences in English, the concepts of fear, anxiety, and worry seem interchangeable in actual biblical usage. For example, some suggest that fear has to do with sudden threats we now face and that worry has to do with future threats we think we will face. 
The Bible offers counterexamples and seems to resist simple categories. People can worry about the present and can fear the future. At the end of the day, worry, anxiety, and fear all emerge from the same human soul and share many more similarities than differences. God's Word gives us the same kind of counsel for each. So I'll use these words yet today and next week interchangeably. Worry, anxiety, and fear. Second, the temptation for our worry, anxiety, and fear to be sinful is a real temptation. We can... In our worry, we can sin. 159 times we're given prohibitions in the Scripture of why we should not be afraid. The Scriptures repeatedly appeal to us, do not fear. 21 other times the Scriptures give us implications by way of other examples that we should not fear. For example, the passage that we read earlier from Matthew 14. Turn with me there. That well-known story of the disciples out on the water and Jesus walks to them. And how do they respond? They cry out in fear, thinking that they have seen a ghost. Jesus appeals to them, do not be afraid. And then Peter, as he walks out on the water to Jesus upon Jesus' command, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus saves him, but he also rebukes Peter. He rebukes Peter because his perspective is off. He's not seeing the world as he ought to. Turn back now to Matthew chapter 6. Where Jesus reminds his followers about God's perfect care of them. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Here we have just two examples where Jesus reminds His followers not to be afraid, to not 
live in anxiety, and here in Matthew 6, not live in anxiety over their material lives. Some of you are perhaps uncomfortable with the fact that I have even suggested that our worry, that our anxiety could be sinful. But friends, if we set aside what Jesus teaches here, and we think that we're okay to worry however we might, to whatever degree we might, about the things that Jesus addresses here, then we are saying what? We are saying that we know better than Jesus. And friends, that's sin. But moreover, moreover, the people of God, the people of God should not be shy or ashamed about calling sin for what it is. We should not be uncomfortable. Well, we should be uncomfortable because we should never be satisfied with sin. But friends, we should be okay with admitting that we are sinners and that we sin even in this area of worry and anxiety. Why can we say that? We can say that because, friends, we're not made right with God on the basis of us having no sin. We are only made right with God on the basis of the fact that the Son of God has given Himself for us. And so we should thank God when He helps us to see areas of sin in our life that we didn't previously recognize as sin. Why should we be thankful? Because we're reminded in another way of the depth of which we need Jesus. And we're reminded in another way of just how incomprehensibly comprehensive His salvation of us is. When we come to faith in Christ, we have only scratched the surface of our understanding of our need for redemption. But as we walk with Christ, we see more and more and more fully just how far our need for rescue goes. And it goes to this area of our lives as well. But, but, not every experience of worry, anxiety, and fear is sinful. Not every experience of worry that we face is sinful. How do I know this? Go back with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 28. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, 
that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be what? That I may be less anxious. Paul is saying here that he is experiencing some measure of unsettledness over the distress that both Epaphroditus and the Philippians are facing. So do we say, Paul, you need to go read the fourth chapter and just set aside your concerns? But it's not just here. Eight other times, Paul writes about his own anxieties for the churches, his own anxieties in this life, but in a way that he's not ashamed about, in a way that doesn't seem to indicate that he's being sinful in these responses. But even more than that, notice what he says in verse 20 about Timothy. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That verb, concerned, it is the exact same verb that Paul is going to use as a command in chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious. So here in chapter 2, he's commending Timothy to this congregation for his concern... Then in chapter 4, he's telling the Philippians to not be concerned. This shows us that this experience of anxiety, of worry in this life, it has a range of experience. And sometimes our experience is sinful. We need to be able to admit that. But also sometimes our experience is not sinful and it is rightly placed. There are legitimate concerns in this life. David Pallison puts it this way in his little booklet, Overcoming Anxiety. He writes this, The capacity for anxiety is God-given. Begin by asking yourself this question. Would you want to live your entire life with no anxiety? Before you quickly and enthusiastically say, yes, think for a moment. Isn't the opposite of anxiety being inert, indifferent to the world around you? If you really want to be anesthetized, there are drugs, meditation techniques, and life philosophies that will stop you from caring. When you stop caring, you won't be anxious anymore. Detachment doesn't feel anxiety and concern. But what would you be missing? Anxiety, when you get to the bottom of it, is a God-given capacity for knowing that something bad is going on in your world, either in the past, the present, or the future. This isn't necessarily negative. There's a right kind of anxiety that leads us to express loving concern for others in the midst of their trouble and draws us to take refuge in God when we are in trouble. Think of it this way. Anxiety is like the red light flashing on your car's dashboard. When the check engine light goes on, you know something is wrong with your car. You don't know exactly what's wrong, but you do know that it's time to visit the mechanic. 
Would you want to drive without those lights to warn you of an engine problem? Probably not. It's better to take care of car trouble before you break down on the open road. The same is true of your anxiety. It is a warning to you about trouble in your world and trouble in your heart. God has hardwired us to be aware of trouble. If you don't feel intense concern from time to time, you are ignoring real trouble. Instead of looking for a technique to numb yourself, you need to understand, harness, and channel your anxiety in constructive ways. The capacity for anxiety is God-given because we live in a world that is filled with things that we ought to be concerned about. Things that ought to trouble our souls. But we also know that fear is not always sinful. Because you know how the Scriptures most often refer to this experience of fear and trepidation? It is in that phrase, the fear of the Lord. The fear of God. 276 times the Scriptures call us to have a reverential fear of God. Sometimes this is a cowering in anticipation of His judgment. And if you are here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, the One who redeems from all manner of sin, friend, you need to fear the coming judgment and run to the Lord Jesus Christ and look to Him by faith. But believers in Christ are not immune to the fear of God. In fact, we are to live our lives before the face of God as we have seen previously in Philippians. We are to live in reverential awe of who God is. And the Bible doesn't give us unique words to talk about these experiences. It uses the same words so that we can conclude sometimes, sometimes our worry is sinful and we need God's help to respond rightly to it. Sometimes our fear, our worry is rightly placed and is even God-honoring. And so as we continue over the next few weeks to consider this command to not be anxious about anything, we need to do so in recognition that what Paul is calling us to here is to set aside any sort of sinful fear. And where it is that we begin to get a sense that our anxiety is corrupted by our sin, we need to run to the Lord and seek the peace that only He can provide. So that in the coming weeks, we want to see how is it that we might fulfill this call. Do not be anxious about anything. 
but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, there is hope in that. There is a promise of comfort. There is a promise of rest of soul, of peace of mind that can only be known by faith, by abiding faith, by enduring faith, by persistent faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come back and let's continue to consider together how we might grow in setting aside our sinful fear and living in holy, reverent fear before the God of all creation who is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, as we come before You, Father, indeed, our consideration of, of this topic is a bit different than what we're, we're used to as we look to the Scriptures and as we strive to drink from them. So, Father, we pray. We pray that as we think about these things that we have considered this morning, as we go throughout the week and consider the the reality of our fears, and as we lay before you the concerns of our hearts. Father, give us discernment. Help us to see where we have need to repent before you for the things that are distracting us, for the things that are overwhelming us in our mind's eye, where we have forgotten the promise of Your presence, where we have forgotten the greatness of Your power, where we have forgotten Your wisdom, Your goodness, Your rule over all things. Father, help us to live wisely in this fallen world. Help us to live with appropriate caution, but help us to live supremely in the confidence of you of your presence and ultimately in the confidence of Jesus our King. Help us, Father, to look to Him. Help us to anticipate His coming. Help us to look with joy and hope, not for security in this life, but in the King who will come back to redeem, to be with His people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.